0: Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Begolke. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Begolke, here as always with John Mitchell. We've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about this week, starting with what the hell is up with the Big 12. From there in our second segment, we're going to be looking at the shifting stakes for the group of five and... All the other independents that fall outside the Power 5 structure. And in our final segment, as we do each week, we'll be looking at some picks against the spread. Offering up some food and drink ideas and uh, sending you on your way. Before we dive in, John, uh, how are things going this week? How are things recovering? Um, how are you feeling about the Crimson
1: Tide so far? Uh, things are going all right. Uh, recovery's getting better, but you know there's a threat of a couple more hurricanes on the Gulf Coast this coming weekend. So, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, feeling good about the Crimson Tide, though. That's one good thing that's going. Uh, I thought they played really well against Texas A&M. So feel feel very good about their standing so far this year.
0: Yeah, certainly they've looked really good so far, and. You know, they've done exactly what a contender needs to do. And they've punched their weight against teams that put up some semblance of a fight and could very well be good this year in their own right. But it's an interesting season all in all for assessing whether opponents are actually decent opponents or not because it's all within conference and I think that's going to skew perceptions along the way. One conference that we do have some data outside of its league, though, is the Big 12. And I think that's where we need to go with this first segment this week, John, is what's happening out there on the Great Plains. You know, what's happening in the Lone Star State. This is a league that, you know, looked to be in prime position to land at least its champion in the college football playoff. And then, you know, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 come back, and it's almost like they're in better position now, despite not having played yet. You know, I obviously, they still have an undefeated team. Oklahoma State is now 3-0 and after they throttled Kansas, as you would expect any Big 12 contender to do. Um, but they've been winning more and more impressively week over week. And that's even with dealing with quarterback injuries right out of the gate, Is effectively. Um, you know, they've, they held off Tulsa, which is something you can't say about a team like UCF, which we'll talk about in the next segment. But do you think Oklahoma State can run the table this year and keep the Big 12 in the college football playoff hunt?
1: No, I don't really see them running the table. I, I think... Um they'll have a loss or even two along the way i think this conference is really up for grabs this year i do like the pokes i like them a lot in the preseason but i think there's a lot of parity in the big 12 this year i don't think there's a whole lot of separation between probably five or six teams in a conference right now i mean i don't when was the last time we saw oklahoma drop back-to-back games like this this is one of the worst starts oklahoma's had in years and i mean texas is how close to dropping back-to-back games themselves that come back you know two weeks ago now over Texas Tech kept them from consecutive losses so you know it's definitely a a weird feel to the college football season to see both Texas and Oklahoma struggling so much early on but it should lead to what's a really fascinating race in the Big 12 but I don't think there's going to be a college football playoff member come from this conference
0: yeah it really doesn't feel like it's their year at all as you mentioned with oklahoma the last time they lost big 12 games on consecutive weekends was 1998 so just just the third year of the big 12 um so yeah it's it's a mess And as you mentioned, Texas is right there with them as a team that had high preseason expectations and is already on the cusp of losing it all. And we'll talk about it in our our picks because it's one of the teams or one of the games that's obviously on the board with the Red River shootout, but a lot of luster's off that game this weekend. Um, And, you know, I think it raises two big questions that I'd love to throw out there. Um, the first one is how hot is Tom Herman's seat right now in Austin and how much hotter will it be if he can't take down an Oklahoma team that's lost two in a row?
1: His seat's definitely getting warmer, perhaps in a normal season, it would be even more. So I just, I don't see Texas making a move with everything that's going on with COVID-19. Um, and how expensive it would be to make that move. Texas is probably one of the only schools that could afford to fire a coach, pay a buyout, and go pay a king's ransom for another guy. But I don't know if I see that happening this off season. But definitely, I'd say the seat's starting to warm up because you know we. It looked like Texas was air quotes back when they won the Sugar Bowl a couple of years ago. Sam Ellinger said as much after they beat Georgia, and you know they had a really a struggling season last year and. All signs point to another struggle this year. And, yeah, I mean, this is a huge Red River shootout for Tom Herman this year. It's a game that he's got to have. But, you know, consequently, it's also a game Oklahoma's got to have to avoid slipping to 1-3. and three. So it's really a, an elimination game in the Big 12 race. And that, that takes me
0: right into my second question, John, because if Oklahoma does indeed lose at the Cotton Bowl this weekend, How far do you see the Sooners potentially bottoming out this year?
1: Man, it's really a question I wasn't even really prepared to think about this year because you don't really think of Oklahoma bottoming out. But, you know, you could see them struggling to get to 500. A 5-5 mark might be uh, their ceiling if they're not able to beat Texas after this weekend. So the problem... With the Sooners this year, obviously defensively they've had their issues, but they're struggling to run the ball a little bit more than they usually do. That offensive line is holding up in pass protection and not opening up as many lanes to run the ball. And you don't have that quarterback who can make up for everything. I think Spencer Rattler's an immensely talented quarterback. He's also very young still. You don't have that ready-made guy. You don't have that steadying presence like a Jalen Hurts or a Kyler Murray or a Baker Mayfield before that, the veteran who's been through the ringer a few times and can, you know, make those plays at the end of the game that you need. Rattler's just not there in his progression yet, and with everything else kind of struggling around him, he's not able to really lift them above their current circumstances.
0: Well, and that's the thing to think about. With all three of those guys before, they were veterans who had played in other systems as well. So... I, I think that's one of the things we've really seen with transfer quarterbacks in recent years, and, I mean, we saw it with Joe Burrow as well last year, is this ability to do really well at their second school, I think in some regards is a product of, you know, the fact that they've already had to do it at another place. And, you know, that, that's to a varying degree, considering some of these guys transferred before they really made it. But just, you know, having to learn a playbook at another place and get those sorts of, you know, mental reps through, I think makes a big difference. And if you're not doing it with the idea that you're going to get into a game, it makes a difference. And we're seeing that with Rowler right now. It, it, it As good as Lincoln Riley is with quarterbacks, and I could easily see him being a Heisman contender a year or two down the road, if he continues to progress under Riley's tutelage, but he's not the kind of whisperer that can just take raw talent and immediately flip the switch on it. All of those guys who were Heisman hopefuls came to him as fairly well developed products already. And I think that we have to keep that in mind when we look at how quarterbacks do under him.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I I don't think either of us would be surprised either if Oklahoma won the remainder of their games and ended up competing for a Big 12 title still. I don't think that would be a shock.
0: No, and, you know, I think a 9-2 Oklahoma team is a very real possibility. You're absolutely right there. I think it would be to our peril to say they've lost these two games and everything's just out the window. But it, I, I think you're right in, in saying there is real potential to bottom out as well. Because if it does go to one and three this week, if they lose three in a row in conference play, it there's really there's not much space left to make up ground. They only have six more games, and they're all big 12 games after that. So, you know, going 4-2 and two in those games would be respectable, and as you said, it'd be 500 football. Before we go, I want to just kind of look at, you know, the the rest of the, you know, potential contenders, because... We have two other teams that are unbeaten in Big 12 play. Um, both both of them uh, consequently have already gotten their games against Oklahoma out of the way. Uh, Iowa State and Kansas State are both 2-0 in Big 12 play now. But they're only 2-1 in the standings because they're two of the three teams that lost to Sunbelt teams in non-conference play. Uh, Kansas State lost 35-31 at home to Arkansas State. Iowa State lost 31-14 at home to Louisiana. And, uh, you know, I I think it's less surprising to anybody out there, but Kansas was the third team that lost in their their 38-23 takedown by the Chanticleers of Coastal Carolina. Considering Kansas lost to them last year as well, I I think we – a lot of people saw that coming, frankly. The other two though were shocking, especially how we've seen Iowa State and Kansas State do this year. And I think this is a good one that's gonna have a seg into our next segment as well after the break. But I have to ask, did we did one, did we write off the Wildcats and the Cyclones a little bit too early when they lost these games to Sunbelt teams? And do you think either of them can be a legitimate contender to land one of those two spots in the Big 12 title game?
1: Yeah, I mean, both are in pretty good shape for that right now. And yeah, I think we did probably write them off a little too quickly, kind of, you know, ignoring potentially that the Sun Belt's got some quality teams this year. And this isn't the first time, you know, that Kansas State has lost an early season game against a um, a group of five program, even an FCS program. They did it a couple of times under Bill Snyder and rebounded to have quality season. So uh, the Wildcats are certainly looking like they're going to do that. And then Iowa state looked a lot better this past week and looked like the team that, you know, we thought they had the potential to be in the preseason. So I, I think both are in really good shape to, to have a spot. Obviously I think the winner of the red river shootout this weekend becomes uh, another threat, and I wouldn't count out West Virginia right now. I've really actually been impressed with how they've played so far this year. They scored a really big win in overtime over Baylor this past weekend, so uh, the Mountaineers and Neil Brown's second season, I think, have really taken a a bit of a step forward that I think maybe we weren't expecting. So West Virginia, I think, is right there, and then obviously Oklahoma State's the leading contender in the conference, but I'd say probably the winner of Oklahoma – and Texas, and then that Kansas State, Iowa State um, spot right there, I think, is what we're looking at for that number two spot.
0: Interesting. I, I think, as you mentioned right out of the gate, this is a league where we could see the champion coming out with two or more losses. You know, I could see this being one of those big 12 years where even going into the championship game, you have a clear number one. You know whether it's Oklahoma State coming in at nine and one, or whether you know Texas is able to run you know things out the rest of the way and get to nine and one, um, or you know perhaps it's the Cyclones or Kansas State, but one of those teams comes in with only one loss, and then you have like a a, a team that wins a three way tie at seven and three to get in and takes down the favorite. It feels like one of those years for the Big 12, but I think ultimately what you said at the beginning is really critical, and I think it needs repeating. I, I don't see this league getting a college football playoff spot this year <laughs> and the shape it's in and the direction it's going.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that.
0: Well, good, because you're the one who originally said it, so it's like we're agreeing on picks and everything. Let's hope we don't do, we get that out of the way in these first couple of segments, everybody.
1: That went better than it usually goes, last week at least.
0: It, indeed it did, and we'll talk about that a bit as well. Uh, but before we, we go any further, everybody, let's take a quick break, uh, you know, get yourself something to drink, stretch out the legs. um, Maybe you're listening to this as you're walking, and that sounds really stupid for you to hear right now, but do what you got to do to get yourself comfortable. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just finished talking about the Big 12 and what kind of chance they actually stand in the college football playoff race. And it's something we talked about in the context of the group of five earlier this year, um, especially before the Big 10 and the Pac-12 came back to fall football. When it was just the... American Athletic Conference, Conference USA, and the Sun Belt playing, now that we also have the Mountain West and MAC back. um, You know, the fact that there were only six conferences for those four spots, you know, it made it look like we might actually see a chance of a team breaking into the top four this season. So let's talk a bit about what these shifting stakes now mean for the group of five. And we'll also take a look at the elephant in the room that is BYU. But, you know, before we go anywhere else, we were talking right before the break about the Sun Belt and what they were able to do to the Big 12 this year. It You know, we've seen Louisiana break in and out of the polls. Um, App State was in and, and has now fallen out. But Do you think this could be the year that the Sun Belt finally breaks into a New Year's
1: Six Bowl, John? I think Appalachian State's loss a couple weeks ago was a huge blow just for the perception of the league, and that's going to be, I think, hard to overcome. There's a really huge game we're going to talk about more later for the Sun Belt this week, because all the talk's been, you know, quite rightly on Louisiana so far this year. The Raging Cajuns have been on to a really impressive start, they've had some really close victories in recent weeks to maintain their unbeaten streak but how about how, how good has Coastal Carolina been so far this year uh they were a better team last year than a lot of people gave them credit for and so far this year they're off to a 3-0 and start they've got the the easy win over Kansas and they just blew out Arkansas State this past week who you know we talked about in the first segment having beat Kansas State so the Chanticleers got a really good football team and I think they got a a real shot to put a scare into Louisiana this weekend and potentially get into the driver's seat of the Sunbelt Conference themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean that's an undefeated matchup. And you're absolutely right. We'll we'll talk about that more in the final segment. So a little teaser there for everybody. That's really the the group of five game of the week, I think. But you know, if the Sunbelt indeed does have their their day this year. I think it's it, it's most likely going to come at the expense of the American Athletic Conference, which, in the you know in the college football playoff era, has clearly been the class of the group of five. You know, we've seen Houston, we've seen UCF a couple of times, we've seen Memphis, all going to New Year's Six bowl games, and. Win or lose, uh, you know, since they're 2-2 and now, they've acquitted themselves quite well. Even last year with Memphis losing 53-39 to Penn State, they put up three times as many points as most teams put on Penn State all year. So, you know, in that regard, the Tigers didn't have enough on defense to hang with them, but they sure were able to, to pour on the offensive firepower. But, you know, out of those teams we've mentioned, we still have yet to see Houston really show us anything on the field. UCF just lost to At Tulsa, um, which obviously looks better for Oklahoma State if they indeed were on the table. But, you know, as we talked about in the previous segment, that probably isn't going to happen. Um, and now Memphis is only one and one. You know, they've had several COVID-19 postponements. Um, including uh, the week where they had their game against Memphis postponed and then immediately turned around, scheduled a game with Baylor on short notice, and had that canceled on them this year. So, you know, it's been kind of a rough go for Houston in that regard, but at this point, you know, Cincinnati's done exactly what we expected of them so far, and... SMU is technically the league leader right now at four and zero. So, do you think that one of those teams, or possibly a UCF or a Memphis, even has the stay, you know, the staying power or the rebounding power to come back, win the rest of the way, and keep the streak at? four in a row and five out of seven for the AAC.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Cincinnati and SMU are both really quality teams, both of which have a shot at running the table. Um, Obviously, probably the game of the year for the AAC is coming up on October 24th when the Bearcats and the Mustangs take the field. So I think, you know, we expected Cincinnati to be among the contenders for a a bid to the New Year Six, and they've certainly looked as such Uh, I think SMU, we expected to be good, but I don't know if anybody expected to be a legit kind of contender. They look like maybe second tier beneath Cincinnati and UCF and kind of right there, right around Memphis. And, you know, the Mustangs got a huge win over the Tigers this past week. And then, like you mentioned, UCF's shocking loss to Tulsa, I think probably to me says more about Tulsa than it does UCF. I think the the Golden Hurricanes have really – Bounce back this year after a few tough seasons from philip montgomery and crew but their defense in particular looks really good i mean they held up on the state to 16 points in that game against the cowboys and then they forced three ucf turnovers only gave up 26 to a golden knights offense and we've seen plenty of times rack up 40 or 50 points like it's nothing so really shout out to that defense at tulsa for coming up with that huge win
0: yeah, I, I think that was an absolutely incredible direction that they were able to uh, to take that. And it does throw a bit of a wrench into this race, but um, I think it's dangerous to write off the league at, at, by any means. Cincinnati's obviously right there and continuing to push their way up into uh, toward the top ten of the AP Top 25, uh, sitting at 11 this week. Uh, so, there's real potential there, obviously, still. And if, if things went crazy, um, who knows how far they could go. I Obviously, not having any games against Power 5 opposition hurts, but I think that... Their win over Army, for instance, offers a nice quality non-conference comparable to offer to the the committee. I you know, there the Mac is coming back. I think in the preseason preview, we you know, as we mentioned, probably no Mac team is going to have a real shot, but. The Mountain West is back as well. And I think that kind of throws another wrench into the equation because Boise State was obviously highly regarded coming into the season. Uh, Definitely garnered votes in both polls in the preseason before they were um, slotted out after the Mountain West canceled their fall year initially. But now that they're coming back... How do you think the Broncos' return impacts the New Year's Six race?
1: I think it's huge. Obviously, I, you know, Boise State is definitely should have one of the better teams in the group of five this season. But I think Air Force, just the same, as a team that could really make a run in the Mountain West. is a team I talked about a lot in the preseason that I really liked. So I, I, I think that's definitely going to have an impact. And the fact that they've been able to kind of sit back and watch. We'll put them in a a decent position while some leagues have kind of played themselves down a little bit. They've got a chance to really assert themselves um, if they can play well. Obviously, there's not going to be opportunities for big out-of-conference wins or anything like that for the Mountain West. Uh, But I think that league is strong enough top to bottom, even perception-wise in the country, that it might not need it.
0: Yeah. I think it's good that you brought up the Falcons as well, because we saw how they were able to take down Navy and uh, open up their own season. And that obviously got them some interest from voters again, as we saw in last week's polls. The biggest elephant in the room, though, in all of this isn't even a group of five team technically. But BYU is 3-0 right now. They're beating teams by an average of 41 points a game. And obviously, it's not a murderer's row of opponents anymore. They don't have six Power 5 teams on their schedule like they did initially uh, before the pandemic completely wiped out their schedule. Uh, to the point where they only had two games and had to completely rebuild it to the point where they now could technically go 10 and 0. So do you, you know, obviously schedule strength is going to be a weird thing this year and I think teams that show natural dominance are going to raise the committee's eyebrows. This is a team that's currently ranked second nationally in scoring offense, fourth in scoring defense. They lead the nation in yards allowed by their defense. Um, Zach Wilson, at quarterback, is only two-tenths of a point behind Mac Jones in national passing efficiency, and his 221.9 puts him nearly 20 points higher than Joe Burrow's record-setting Heisman-winning efficiency rate last year. Says a lot about Jones as well. Says, you know, some things about the competition everybody's played so far and the fact that we're still early in the season. But this is an incredible BYU team right now. Do you think that they have the potential to force the committee's hand um, and at least land a New Year's 6th spot if they finish 10-0?
1: I think a New Year's Six spot at 10-0 would be almost assured. I'd be shocked if they were able to break into the top four for the college football playoff. And it's unfortunate that, you know, among a laundry list of reasons that the pandemic sucks, one of them has to be that BYU's schedule, um, you know, prevented their opportunity to play Utah. Uh, for instance, and others that could have really strengthened their case, because they definitely seem like a really quality football team. Uh, they've got opportunities on the schedule now against Houston and Boise State. So I think what would be best for BYU is that if is that Houston and Boise State dominate their respective conferences, right? That Boise dominates the Mountain West, wins the Mountain West easily, and that Houston makes a run for the American crown. Even and that would really boost BYU's profile. But otherwise, I I don't see them breaking into the top four. But at ten and zero, I think they have a really good um, case to be a uh, New Year Six team. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think this is going to be a year where strength of schedule it, it, it's going to be harder to justify putting an un, you know an oversized impact You know, impact on that or over allowing that to influence decisions simply because we don't have these comparables across the board that we can really, you know, assess, you know, apples to apples doing any sort of thing. But it's no fault of BYU's that they lost those six games off their schedule. You mentioned Utah. They lost, you know, games at Utah and at Stanford. Both of those road games would significantly boost their credibility. Also at Arizona State, that's three Pac-12 games right there that just wiped out. They lost a home game against Missouri. They lost a home game against Michigan State and a road game at Minnesota half of their schedule, their original schedule, was Power 5 teams, four of those six on the road. Um, You know, they also had uh, at Boise State and home against San Diego State, which both of those now seem to be added back into their schedule. The Mountain West has said that they would work with both of those teams to Get games against BYU included in their their schedule this season. So, does that boost their credibility at all? Does that does that offer any potential to push them over the top? Or maybe the question I should really be asking is, how far does the chaos have to go before going ten zero with that schedule gives them, gives them a chance?
1: Yeah, I think the chaos would have to really reign. I think you'd have to be looking at several two-loss options for the for the fourth spot for an undefeated BYU to get in. If that schedule would have held, obviously that you just went down and they ran the table against that, there'd be no excuse to leave them out of the college football playoff picture. And you know, and whether it's fair or not, we both know how they're going to be viewed nationally at, at ten and zero by so many people even even if they get impressive wins over like I was talking about a Boise State who ends up winning um the Mountain West and a Houston that ends up winning the American Athletic Conference that's still going to be I think an uphill climb but you know who knows I mean this is definitely an odd year so a team like BYU making a run into the college football playoff would almost feel right it
0: really would I mean in a year where it feels like I've seen more references to 1984 than, you know, probably since 1984. The fact that BYU is all the way up to 15 in both polls is rather significant. And that's a seven-spot seven, seven spot jump from last week. They had the oper- and and I mean, think about that. They jumped seven spots after playing Troy— You know, I mean, I think one that speaks to the credence that people are giving the Sunbelt in general. Um, You know, the fact that they did have such a strong showing against the Big 12 is allowing a team like BYU to pick up a little more residual credit from games like that. Obviously, it's a consequence of, you know, multiple top 25 teams above them all losing this past week. But that's going to happen from week to week. And I think especially not knowing how teams are going to fare in terms of who actually gets to play on their roster from week to week could have real impacts as well. So, you know, am I going to say that it will happen? No. But am I, like, I legitimately think that if we have chaos on the level of 2012, not even 2007 levels of chaos, but 2012 when you saw um, both the Big East and the Big Ten have surprise champions that had bad enough records and bad enough rankings that it allowed a one-loss Northern Illinois team to claim a BCS bowl spot that's the kind of chaos it will take to get them in. And so I think it, you know, like we mentioned with the Big 12, the fact that, you know, we could see a three-loss team potentially come through as the champion there. You know, maybe it's a case of Wisconsin getting to, or Minnesota, or, you know... Um, whoever comes out of the Big Ten West coming out with two losses, one of them being to Ohio State and then knocking off Ohio State in the championship game. Or, you know, as we're seeing with the ACC this year, the fact that, you know, we could see more chaos along the way. We have a couple of great games to talk about from that league that are coming up this week um, that kind of serve as elimination games that we'll get to in the final segment. And, if they end up knocking each other out and just kind of bludgeoning each other to obsolescence, I I don't think the window's completely closed because I think this season's weird enough that I think record is going to mean more than it necessarily does in seasons past, and that's because you just can't compare in nearly the same way across conferences that you can in a normal season.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, I think. Um, So, yeah, I I definitely think the window's open for BYU. Uh, And, I mean, give me the Cougars over having to watch a a two- or three-loss team from another conference get in there. Give me an unbeaten BYU over them any day. I mean, it's not like BYU
0: was going to do any worse than Oklahoma would have had they run the table and, and gotten there again based on what we've seen from their past two losses.
1: That's very true.
0: Sorry, Sooners fans. I'm really sorry. I'm not actually sorry. Not even sorry. Um, Because we all need a bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of humility in our lives. And uh, I think this season is teaching us that more than anything. Um, Even if John's Crimson Tide continue to win. But we're going to take a quick break on that note. Uh, So, refresh... um, replenish, do what you've got to do. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome to the final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've been talking about the Big 12 struggles, um, the shifting sands for the group of five as the Big 10 and Pac-12 return to play soon enough. But let's actually look at some games. Before we do, though, John, what are you planning to fuel up with
1: this weekend? You know, I had a lot of success this past week with the that white chicken chili I talked about last week. So that was really good. So we're going to keep it chili again this week. I, I just want to make another chili and make it a more traditional chili instead. So that, that crisp fall air is out, and it's just making me in the mood for a big crock pot full of chili again. So that's what I'm going to go with, uh, wash it down with a nice um, Kentucky bourbon ale I always like to grab that as soon as the, uh, the weather starts turning a little bit cooler. So, that's what I'm rocking with.
0: I love it. I actually made some chili this, uh, past Sunday myself. Uh, didn't make it in time for game day, but, uh, still have plenty of leftovers. Still enjoying it through this week. Um... I think the Alca Salter Corporation absolutely loves me whenever I make chili because I use plenty of their product. Um, but, you know, th- these are small sacrifices to make for something as good as chili. I think, for, in my case, it, you know, the chill in the air always feels like it's time to bake something, and when it comes to baking and tailgating, obviously, like, making your own pizza down, tossing some pies... Um, it's always fun. I'm actually thinking of making like a giant stromboli mm. and just having like a nice, like, stuffed roll that you can cut into slices and just eat throughout the day, like you've got a giant six foot, you know, party sub or something. So, I think that's probably what I'm gonna end up doing. So, you know, I'm gonna make the roll, wash it down with some arrogant bastard ale, and uh. You know, fun story about this, the first time I ever had an arrogant bastard, um, and this is a story that consequently also told me immediately why coming back to campuses this fall was such a dumb idea. So I went to college out of high school like so many people do, went to a small Division three school, Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. Went there to go be a debater because they recruited me to their debate team because that was about the only team that didn't suck at Lewis and Clark College when I went there in 2001. Uh, But I got there, you know, for, you know, move-in week and move into the dorms and move into a quad with three other guys and getting to know them. We ended up deciding to have a party in our quad. Um, 18-year-olds, you know, figuring... Other people will bring the beer to our place. It'll be great. And uh, it worked out. But my buddy, who was a sophomore there, um, had graduated a year ahead of me in Wyoming, but we'd known each other since we were like seven, eight years old. He's in the dorm a couple of floors up, and he comes down to the party. He's got a 22 of arrogant bastard ale. And he walks through the door and he's Zach, you have to try this beer. And he hands me the 22. He just popped the, the cap off of it as he walked into the room. And he hands it to me. And I take it. And I taste it. And go. And it's damn good. And I keep going and going. And I balushi the thing all the way down. And then hand it to him very calmly. That is a mighty tasty beer, Jeremy. And, you know, um, he wasn't even mad. Like, like. That's college right there. The fact is that you're going to be sharing beers with people. Um, It's that you're going to be inviting people to party in close quarters. Um, College is a time for getting some of that stupidity out of your system, which is why we're seeing cases go up on campuses around the country now. Does football help with this? Um, Probably not if you see all of the, you know, campuses that are allowing games to happen on, you know, in this or fans to come to on campus stadiums, Um, even if they're not allowing tailgating outside. We've seen pictures from around the country. People are holding big tailgate parties on their lawns immediately off the campus boundary. And, you know, hosting them and, you know, making some nice scratch out of it, for sure. But, put, you know, I mean, it's not like the public danger has passed. It's that the university has foisted that just across their borders and, and again, tried to absolve themselves of responsibility. Just like they have with students and compacts that places like Penn State have made students sign across the country. Um Students are going to share the 22 if they're afforded the opportunity to share the 22. I guess that's the mentality I bring to this, because that's what Arrogant Bastard taught me 17, 18, Jesus, 19 years ago now, (laughs) um, when I first got the chance to learn that lesson. So with that little aside and my bitching about the fact that this probably still isn't the greatest of ideas, everybody. Let's talk about some games, John.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that story. That's a good story all around and definitely very fitting uh, for what we're going through.
0: I, I figured it might at least offer some perspective about why I think this is crazy, because I think I owe that to people out there, um, you know, because still making money off the sport, still writing about it. Still a poor grad student that needs to make a little extra income any way he can. You know? I mean, because I'm also a student right now, too. Um, 19 years later when I learned how to be a far better student. But, you know, that in itself is a different story. But we've got games going on this weekend. Week 6 is upon us. It's hard to believe that we're already at Week 6. I mean, normally this would be the halfway point. It's really like week six of sixteen this year, but we've got a lot of interesting games here. And I think one that we didn't necessarily expect would be as good as it what you know as it is coming into the week is Virginia Tech at North Carolina. You've got two undefeated ACC teams against one another, um, and. A couple of teams that are really damn good on defense, which I think is is the story for me. Um, You know, the Hokies are bringing a front seven that ranks higher than anybody else nationally in terms of sacks per game uh, to Chapel Hill. And they're going to challenge Sam Howell, I think, all game long. And then, you know, on the other side of the ball, the Tar Heels have the nation's best rushing defense. They're allowing 54 yards a game, but now they have to try to do that against Khalil Herbert. So, you know, the spread is five and a half points. Um, they have Virginia Tech as a five and a half point underdog coming to Chapel Hill. I personally think that that's nice and, and fat there. I You know, while I think this game probably still gets won by North Carolina. This feels something like 31-27 North Carolina. I don't think that this is, you know, I think this is going to be a really close contest that could could go three to four points either way. I think five and a half points is really generous. What are you thinking about this, John?
1: No, I totally agree. I think we need to be talking about how good of a coaching job Justin Fuentes has done. For Virginia Tech so far, with all the adversity they faced, all the players they've been without for several weeks, and they're still getting it done. Um, With the patchwork secondary this past week, um, they're still getting it done. And, you know, he's faced a lot of criticism with the Hokies for some of the struggles they've had, but he's done a really impressive job so far this year. Obviously, this is the toughest test yet, but, you know, North Carolina's sitting at number eight in the country, but they've looked a little shakier than I think a lot of people expected. They. Really struggled in Chestnut Hill last week to beat Boston College. They looked a little um, sluggish around the edges in the season opener against Syracuse as well. So I'm in total agreement with you. I think five and a half points is far too generous, even with the Tar Heels at home. Obviously, North Carolina's got the top rushing defense in the country, but this Virginia Tech rushing offense has been just bludgeoning people up front. They average over 319 yards per game on the ground. I think Khalil Herbert breaks through in the fourth quarter for a big run. I like Virginia Tech to win outright. Something like 23-20 to makes sense to me.
0: So, yeah, you're thinking they'll have the last touch and get those three points to take the lead. I'm thinking maybe North Carolina has the ball last and is able to score to get that four-point victory. Either way, you know, take those points and run with them because – Virginia Tech is better than a a five-and-a-half-point underdog in this game. Well, our agreement starts, and, uh, you know, we said we were going to talk about it. Agreement wasn't the worst thing last week, you know. So let's see if we continue to have some agreement. Maybe if we just continue to, you know, be rosy and, uh, you know, perfectly align the rest of the year. But maybe people will make some
1: money out of it. I don't know. I'm certainly not. Um, Hey, everything else is thrown upside down this year. Us being in agreement and getting things right might as well be happening. I
0: love it. Yeah. Let's go to the second game. We've got Texas and Oklahoma playing at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, even though the Texas State Fair is not going on while the game is being played. Um, and as, as we mentioned in our opening segment, this is a a game that lost a lot of luster. Both of these teams are reeling after week five losses. And even so Oklahoma is a one and a half point favorite here. Um, I'm just going to throw it straight to you, John. Do you think that Oklahoma should be favored in this game?
1: you know i i I don't think so i think really the lines on the wrong side texas to me should probably be considered about a three-point favor in this game is probably where i would set it um i think this is coming from a lot of betters just can't wrap their heads around and process oklahoma dropping three straight games that's kind of where i'm at when i'm looking at this game like just trying to figure out if it, if I can even rationalize seeing a 1-3 in three Big 12 record by Oklahoma's name after this weekend. But I think that's what we're going to see. I really do. I think it's going to be a good game. I think it'll probably be pretty high scoring. I don't really think either defense is going to be able to stop the opposing offense. But when I look at this, I'm going to lean on Sam Ellinger, the senior quarterback over the sophomore Spencer Rattler. I think Ellinger will make enough plays. He'll avoid the big mistake that Rattler, I think, will make in the fourth quarter in his first experience in this rivalry. And I just feel like this game's more important for Tom Herman in Texas um, in the big picture. You know, short-term Oklahoma obviously needs a win, but I think this is a game that Tom Herman cannot lose if he wants to maintain his post in Austin. I think Texas gets it. I think it's a a shootout, 45-38 Longhorns. We actually agree once again.
0: Um, you know, I think the big thing I wanted to mention is that Texas's offensive line has been getting the job done. In terms of sacks allowed, they're allowing less than a sack a game. Um, they've been doing really good at, you know, um, preventing tackles for loss. Um, their first... Uh, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, they're in the top 10 nationally in both of those categories, and sacks allowed... Yeah, 8th nationally. They're allowing 3 tackles for loss, 3.6 tackles for loss per game, uh, only 2 in 3 games um, in terms of sacks. So they're doing a good job of protecting Sam Ellinger. The same cannot be said for Spencer Rowler. You know, you mentioned... Um, that they've been having rushing issues when we talked about them earlier and i you know part of the issue for him is you know for rattler as a new quarterback coming in and starting is he doesn't have nearly the same caliber of line that these previous quarterbacks enjoyed as well and yes their experience their mobility and whatnot all contributed to allowing them to paper over some deficiencies but this is a very green team in Norman, and everybody's taking their lumps. So I'm right there with you. I think this ends up looking like a basketball score, and I think Texas's games are probably going to look like basketball scores a lot this season because um, I, I had this one 52-49 Texas. But, I you know, I think, again, that spread feels – Very generous, and you're absolutely right. It's more Vegas setting it to get some play because people are still being irrational with the Sooners, I think. Moving on to our third game this week, this is the one that we mentioned is pretty much the group of five game of the week. You have a pair of Sunbelt division leaders in undefeated Coastal Carolina and undefeated Louisiana Um, meeting a week earlier than expected. Their game got pushed up from October 17th to October 10th um, after Appalachian State was forced to postpone their game against the Raging Cajuns this weekend due to a COVID-19 outbreak on their team. Um, So rather than, you know, what we thought was going to be the marquee Sunbelt game in week six, we got what's actually set up as the Marquis sunbelt game now that app state has a loss on their record um, because both the chanticleers and the cajuns they're undefeated but they also have those wins over big 12 teams and this seems like the kind of game where the winner probably lands in the next ap top 25 obviously louisiana is there right now but i think if coastal carolina takes them down they get a spot this week um, but, you know, at the same time, I it, it feels like these teams might be trending in opposite directions. It's been a lot of close calls for Louisiana the past couple weeks. They needed a 53-yard field goal at the end of the game to win last week against Georgia Southern. Um, had a tough go of it at, at Georgia State as well, frankly. So... Coastal Carolina is a a six-and-a-half-point underdog. Um, I think that's too high. But I want to get your thoughts on this before I actually throw out my
1: final pick. No, I think six-and-a-half is probably too high, too. Uh, Louisiana's won their last two games by a combined five points. I think that honestly speaks to the quality of the Sun Belt, though, more than anything else, because Georgia State and Georgia Southern are both pretty good teams. They could probably on any given Saturday beat anybody in the Sun Belt, you know, depending on which way the ball drops. But I think Coastal Carolina is a team that's being slept on. I really like the Chanticleers. Uh, Grayson McCall, their freshman quarterback, has been terrific. He's thrown nine touchdowns in just one pick so far. He'll have to be as good as he's been all year against Louisiana this Saturday to get the win. Uh, The Raging Cajuns, Billy Napier, they like to live dangerously. I think they keep living dangerously, and they survive one more Saturday, but it's close. So I'll take Louisiana, but 27-24. So give me the points.
0: See, I I think this is an upset here. I think Coastal Carolina goes to Lafayette, takes down the Raging Cajuns, and I see it like 35-27. You know, this is one of the top five offenses in the country there at Coastal Carolina they're averaging more than 44 points a game and you know the fact is that's 16 more points a game than Louisiana is putting up on average and they were the team that seemed to have the experience and would be able to do those sorts of things both defenses look great they're both you know uh Louisiana is slightly better they're allowing 21 points and uh you know, they're ranked 20th in the country. The, you know, the chance of clears are 25th nationally in scoring defense. They're allowing 22.3, 1.3 more points a game. So even if you account for home field, you account for the disparities in, in the defense. You give them four and a half points. Um, I, I think that. Coastal Carolina is still the, the better team. I, I honestly think that they're just more complete this year, and they continue to turn heads and play their way into the AP Top 25 for the first time in school history this week.
1: Yeah, so we're agreeing on the spreads, but we've got a couple different upset picks on the
0: board for outright wins. So. Exactly. you got to shake it up a little bit, I think, in a year like this. um big game out of the sec this week john is undoubtedly tennessee at georgia um i think most of us have have really thought about florida and georgia as the race to watch in the east but tennessee could still be a potential spoiler um they continue to do it one way or another with Jarrett garantano quarterbacking the squad um and, you know, Georgia, obviously, after their, their first-half struggles against Arkansas, has finally figured it out at quarterback, you know, shifting from DeWan Mathis to Stetson Bennett, who looked really good in his second game at the helm as well, uh, taking down Auburn. Um, Tennessee's a 13-point underdog between the hedges. Do you think Georgia is good enough to beat them by two touchdowns?
1: You know, what I think we saw last week with Georgia is they they established their identity last week. They were kind of a team in search of itself against Arkansas in the first game. And, you know, sh- to be fair to the Razorbacks, I think they're a little bit better than anyone anticipated them being. You know, they were competitive against Georgia, and they beat Mississippi State this past week. So, Great for Sam Pittman, shout out to him getting his first win and the Hogs finally breaking that 19-game losing streak in conference. I know that was just debilitating for Arkansas fans. But, you know, I I think Georgia last week against Auburn established what their identity is going to be. They aren't going to beat you with flashy quarterback plays. Stetson Bennett isn't one of the best quarterbacks in the country. He's a serviceable guy who's going to try to go out there and not make mistakes. But what Georgia's going to try to do is they're going to try to kick your ass in the trenches on both sides of the ball. And that's exactly what they did to Auburn this past week. They overwhelmed Auburn's offensive line with their front seven, and they dominated up front with guys like Zamir White and James Cook running the football um, and controlling the clock. And it's interesting because the identity that Tennessee wants to have and is trying to establish themselves is the exact same thing, right? With Jarek Garantano, they don't want to put him in a lot of high leverage situations where he can make debilitating mistakes that we've seen him have too big of a penchant for in his several seasons in Knoxville. They want to run the ball. They want to play quality defense. These are two former Nick Saban defensive coordinators in Alabama. So clearly this is going to be their mantra. So this is good old-fashioned SEC, old-school SEC football is what it feels like this Saturday, Zach. But Georgia still does it better than Tennessee does it, I think. Talent-wise, Georgia. I think the balls have a little bit of an edge at quarterback even, but Georgia's got the edge up front, I still think, on both sides of the ball, and that's going to be the difference. I think two touchdowns is too generous. Um, I like Georgia to win, but I like Georgia 27-21. I think the balls are going to be really competitive in this game and really show that they're a team to really be reckoned with in the SEC this year. Yeah,
0: I'm with you there. I'm with you on that. That was going to be my next question, if you continued going a little bit further, was Georgia might be better, but are they two touchdowns better? I certainly don't think so. I, I think seeing these teams get two touchdowns each would be impressive, just given, as you said, the defensive tenor of it all. Another thing that I think is going to be important here is discipline. It, it could really go a long way here in allowing Tennessee to stay in this game. Because uh, this Vols team takes five and a half fewer flags and nearly 50 fewer penalty yards per game on average. Um, at least, oh, you know, that's a two-game sample size, obviously. So take that for what it's worth. Um Obviously, we saw the Deep South, so, well, this rivalry is one of the games that was played. So that, had, you know, rivalries obviously have an impact on that as well. That said, I, I do think Tennessee is the more veteran, more disciplined team. I think Georgia's the more talented team. I don't think the Volunteers pull off the up, outright upset, but I have a 24-22 I think it's really close and down to the wire. Yeah, so should
1: be a really competitive game. I mean, I, I think we're both in agreement that Jeremy Pruitt's really built up this Tennessee team, and they're not very far from being a, a, a contender in the SEC East again. Speaking of a team that might or might not be
0: a contender again, um, we have to, it, it, we'd have we be remiss not to talk about the primetime game of the week in the ACC. Uh, We get to learn if the U is back this week when uh, Manny Diaz takes the Hurricanes up to South Carolina for their road showdown with Clemson. This is, I mean, this is a game between teams that have formidable defenses. Um, It's a a clash between the two most efficient quarterbacks in the ACC right now. Um, one of which we knew could do it and the other of which we knew could do it at some level but we didn't know if he'd be doing it at his new school at the rate he is um so you know i think the lawrence king duel is going to be huge uh, the turnover chain how many times does it come out after we've seen it already come out six times this season this is going to be a good one john um But, you know, we talked about big spreads. And as of right now, when we're recording on Monday night, you know, as the opening lines have shifted a bit, we'll see this probably go down a little. But Miami is currently a 14-and-a-half point dog in this game. Is that, you know, is that the Sharps being generous to Clemson as, you know, until you beat the champ, they're the champ. Is this a matter of just reading the talent on both sides of the ball? Um, are, is it a matter of just trying to balance out voting as people push Miami? You know, because I, I think Miami is a national brand, and you can see heavy voting, and they're trying to, to extend that line to make them a less attractive bet, but... I mean, it's not even an unattractive bet, because obviously, you know, covering two touchdowns, it feels like it's going to be a natural for this Canes team in my head. But am I not seeing something here?
1: Yeah, finally, I guess we're going to have a little bit of disagreement for the first time in two weeks on the podcast, I think Clemson wins by three touchdowns. I think the Tigers are... Uh, demonstrably a superior team than Miami. I think Miami's got a good team. I think they're several steps away from being a great team. What worries me about the Canes is I don't know that their defense is as good as we thought they were going to be coming in. We're just a couple weeks removed or a few weeks removed now from Louisville putting 500 yards on Miami and 34 points. And due respect to Louisville, they've got a good quality team, but they don't have Trevor Lawrence. They don't have the offensive weapons that Clemson has. And Miami's been able to do a lot of their damage on the ground. Cameron Harris has had a terrific season so far. He's going to find the going pretty tough against that clumps of the front. Um, Brett Venables is going to have a, a game plan to to stop him. And can De'Ara King make enough plays down the field to keep this game competitive? I think it'll be a game that's relatively close early on. But I think Travis Etienne has a big game on the ground. I think Trevor Lawrence hit some big throws to Amari Rodgers. And we're looking at something along the lines of 45-24 Clemson, I think they cover.
0: Clemson covers. I don't think that's going to happen, John. We really have some disagreement here. Um, Because I'm looking at this Canes defense, and I'm seeing a team that's front seven has been formidable. Um, Only two other teams in the country average more tackles for loss per game. Um, their top 20 in sacks. I think they have um, the workhorses to really make Trevor Lawrence's life hell. I really do. And, you know, I think, as I said, their turnover luck has been much better so far this season. Uh, You know, Clemson's been good at preventing turnovers, but they haven't generated them at nearly the same rate. And I think that's going to be something that's critical to watch in this game. And frankly, you know, I think I think this is just the weird season. I think the you know, a weird season like this needs to continue being weird and it's it, it's not going to get weird unless we see some fluctuation in the ACC. I think this is the week it happens. I think Miami wins
1: 31-28. <laughs> wow, that's real bold. I love it. Nothing would make me happier than you being right on this, by the way. I You know, it,
0: it's something that I think a lot of people that have no partisan interest in this would be really fascinated to see. You know, we have LSU has already gone down. We have Oklahoma has gone down. Texas has gone down. It feels like this, you know, We these contenders are just going to start falling by the wayside and picking themselves back up because I, I think it's really hard to expect some of these teams to, to get by with more than one loss, um, and it would be shocking to see that happen to Clemson, but they have other tough games on the schedule ahead, too, and... I hate to say it, but the way that they've been... Or that Davo Sweeney has made some cavalier comments about COVID-19. Cavalier comments about the Black Lives Matter movement. How, you know, does the powder keg go off at some point there? It'll be interesting to see. It, It could happen in one way or another where you lose some players over the course of the season. Is that going to happen? Obviously, you know, it's not going to happen this week, but we could see it happen down the road. And if it does, you know, we talked about Oklahoma imploding. I, I think this could be the
1: year that the phrase Clemsoning comes back. Oh, wow. Well. It would certainly be on its way back if they lose this week, that's for sure. I, I agree what you're saying about the contenders potentially slipping. There's just, to me, there's two constants at least of the teams currently playing and that's Alabama and Clemson. I have a lot of confidence in both of those teams ability. And I just, from a talent perspective and even a coaching perspective, I just don't, I don't see it. Um, I'd love to be wrong here. I'm telling you, I'd love to be wrong. I would love to see Miami pull the upset. I think that would be great for college football for Miami to pull the upset over Clemson this week. But I, I have a feeling the Tigers are going to flex their muscles.
0: You got your disagreement, everybody, and you know isn't that really what we're looking for in some way here? Um, Because you know we can disagree on the final score, we can disagree on whether a team, you know, is going to win or lose, but they're you know we still think they're going to cover the spread. This is disagreement. This is what we're here to to create. So thank you. I'm glad we finally got here two weeks into picking of um, absolutely see this
1: is odd everybody too by the way because we used to disagree a lot on picks i don't know what it is if it's just doing it in podcast form we're i don't know conforming into one thing but it used to be constant disagreements when we were talking about picking games
0: i mean we disagreed a fair amount last year too though that's the thing i, I i'm like trying to think what the variable is here and i think it's just you know it's Either we're picking games where the spread is just a, a way too generous for the circumstance, we're not picking a game like this where one of us reads the tea leaves and says, Clemson's going to win by 21, and the other one says, oh, Miami's going to pull off a three-point upset. I, You know, I mean, I guess the closest we came there was with the Coastal Carolina game, but that was the fact that they gave us way too fat a spread means that doesn't mean anything. Right. Eh. So it goes. So it goes, everybody. Any final thoughts you want to throw out there before we close up shop ahead of week
1: six play, John? Uh, no, I'm you know, just excited to watch more games. I think we got a really quality slate of games this weekend. I hope everybody out there stays safe um, and continues to, to practice the social distancing and everything, and we can get, eventually, we can get back to normal. Don't follow LSU's
0: lead on this, everybody. Um, I hate to pick out any one single school, but the fact that they've announced this week that they're um, no longer following CDC entry protocols at the stadium to allow people to get in faster, and um, the fact that they're going to be ramping up alcohol sales again inside of Tiger Stadium, probably not a good combination, This might not be the example you want to emulate. Um, I'd also like to say uh, Reverend John Jenkins at Notre Dame certainly did not give you an object lesson in how to behave responsibly in the midst of a pandemic, Um, even though he's been really happy to criticize students who, like my dumbass self 19 years ago, are being dumbass college students, whereas... A university president, you would expect, has gotten his dumbass college years out of his system already. Don't be like those people, everybody. Take some smart examples. Like John said, distance as much as you can. Wear masks if you're going to go out and if you need to be around other people. Believe me, you don't have a medical condition. I have too many people in my life that have chronic respiratory issues that can tell you your claim that your asthma doesn't let you wear a mask is absolute bullshit. So don't feed it to anybody. Just put on a damn mask. Um, stay safe. Find yourself something good to eat and drink. Do what makes you happy because we need a little bit of that levity in these times. And until next Wednesday when we get to talk to you again, I hope you all have as pleasant a week as you possibly can.